everybody here this evening. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think you guys will take a lot away from it. I think you guys will get a lot, take a lot away from it, whether you're a creator, entrepreneur, wherever you are in your career, in your life, whatever you're trying to do. Anybody who's passionate about progress, personally, professionally, this conversation is definitely for you. Um, I think Ryan has a lot to offer as well. He's had a tremendous story that we'll get into also. Um, for those who don't know, also, my name is Julian Mitchell. Um, I'm a columnist at Forbes now, where I cover entrepreneurs and startups. I started Get Paid to Be Yourself as a column two and a half years ago, and it was all about getting people to see the true mechanics of people who've taken their perspective and their value and turned it into multifaceted businesses, enterprises, or people who've been able to design a career that is true to who they are and the mission that they want to accomplish. Because one of the things that I truly believe is that cultural capital is becoming more valuable than a dollar, and the exchange rate on influence is actually becoming, it's eclipsing the value of a physical dollar. So what you can actually get in return, the leverage you have, the power you have, is actually, that's a way that we as people can have mobility, have options, have freedom, have wealth, be able to create things for ourselves and our families, right? So that's where it started. And then getting into talking to these dynamic individuals, it sprung into also a series of workshops where you teach the mechanics of that as well, right? So I'm gonna bring up Mr. Ryan Leslie, and we'll let him get into the introduction. But Ryan, where's he at? There he is. Give it up for Ryan Leslie. So we moved around a lot. The Salvation Army is actually organized like the military. 
So uh, I was born in Washington, D.C. I only stayed there for maybe a couple of days. And then the first nine months of my life, I spent at a children's home, a Salvation Army children's home in Suriname. Uh, that my grandparents, so my grandparents on both sides also officers in the Salvation Army, so they were running that children's home. They wanted my mother to finish college, and so I came back from that, and my mother and father decided that they wanted to also get into the service. And so by the time I graduated, well, I actually never graduated from high school. Right. By the time I was a junior in high school, three years, I'd already attended four different high schools, and we were about to move again, and the guidance counselor at the school in Sacramento told us that there weren't any classes left for me because I was too advanced. And in order to finish my high school credits, I needed to go to community college. And my father had the bright idea that community college was the same as any other college. And we should apply to all the great colleges, schools. And at the time, I wanted to make my parents proud, so I told them that I wanted to be a doctor. Hold on, real quick, let them know how old you were at that time. Around 14. 14. So, I told my parents I wanted to be a doctor, a neuroscientist, a, a neurosurgeon to a be A 14-year-old neurosurgeon. Well, a 14-year-old <laughs> aspiring neurosurgeon, yeah. right? Because right. it made him feel really good. Oh yeah, this is my son, he wants to be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. And so we applied to right. UC schools. I got into the seven-year-old uh, medical program at UC Riverside. And then, just on a whim, a right. long shot, we applied, and when I say we, I actually mean we, like my dad literally said, yeah, yeah, yeah. we applied to Harvard, right. Stanford, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, uh, and, and, and the big envelope came in from Harvard, it came in from Stanford, and Yale, we got the little envelope, because they said I was too young. <laughs> and uh, I, remember, I remember getting a letter, or I think it was an email or a letter from Yale, my sophomore year at Harvard, because when they, when, when they declined my admission, yep. they basically said, hey, you're too young, you should take a year off and explore the world, figure out what you want to do. At and 15. Yeah, figure out what you want to do, just explore the world. We think you're a little too young to matriculate into you know, the college environment at Yale. And then my sophomore year at Harvard, like, I got you, a, you, weren't at, you weren't in Harlem yet at this time. No, I was okay, in okay, okay. My sophomore year at Harvard, I got a letter from the people at Yale that said, hey, what you doing your year off? And we wrote back, oh, I was a freshman at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> was, we had a great time with that. Right, right, right. For sure. And at this time, too, because there's a great clip of you also being in a band mm. at that time, so young. Yeah. Now, how many people have seen his YouTube videos, if you've ever watched, like, the studio videos? So before that became a wave, like, before Beacox had the studio exposed and all of that, and that became a trend, mm -hmm. Even back then when you were a teenager, you used to be a prodigy when it came to playing instruments and just your vision for music and leading a band. So talk about that, like your passion for music. So you were very smart. You go to Harvard as a teenager, but you also had this like genius when it came to music and creativity at an early age. So what role did that play? I, I think that's appreciated. I think you're great, greatly grossly exaggerated <laughs> about genius. Uh, but I, I learned, I told myself how to play instruments. The video was very impressive. Yeah, I mean, that, right. that's how it was. I wouldn't necessarily, and actually, you know what? YouTube, like the comments are so real. So if you really go through and look through, like, you know, the, some one, one of the videos, I think it was, uh, I forget which DJ it was, it was on Sirius Satellite. And they asked me to play over Lil Wayne, Lollipop, right? And I kind of found my way over the keys and was playing over Lil Wayne. Y'all can look it up. 
And the comments in those videos were so real, like, oh, he just found some chords and played them. I can do that with my eyes closed. You know, it doesn't take a prodigy to do that. He ain't really a musical genius, etc. And so I actually, I agree with that, mostly because when I look at young people who study music at a Juilliard, or who actually really dig into like the church chords, or who know how to improvise and really dig in on the jazz level, these are all levels, I believe, of expertise and proficiency that, that I, I have yet to achieve. And for me, it was really just about having a complete thought in my mind and racing to get to execution of that complete thought using the tools to which I had access. And at the time, I had access to a lot of keyboards. And when I finally was able to get some money and get some deals, I could go into the studio and have access to instruments. And so that became my playground, if you will. And what, what was that vision for music, though, at that same time? So you aspired to be a neurosurgeon, but then where was music in that trajectory for you at that space? How many of y'all, when you got to college, like sign up for your first credit card and screw it all up? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in that boat with y'all. Right? So what happened is I got, per, I got my first credit card and the number one pieces that I wanted to add to my dorm room was the craziest sound system so I could I could literally play CDs and slow jams, you know what I mean, right? And play stuff out the window, you know what I mean? Because you know when you get to school, now you don't have parents like knocking on your door and you play the slow jams, a little vibe. So I dorm room. And so there used to be this uh, this Columbia House service where you could get seven CDs for the price of one. Y'all know about it. And so that's what I did. And I remember one of those CDs. So so first of all, I maxed out my credit card getting this this Onkyo stereo set. I did all my research about stereo system, and it had a six-disc changer. So I could really, before, like pre-Spotify, I put my little playlist together, you know, kill it. And one of the CDs that I got was a Black Street CD. And there was a song, you know, uh, the before I lecture you the vibe. And so they'd come over and, you know, they'd be about to leave and
they always want to protect you from the personal and professional risk that comes along with dreaming on that level. Right. And for me, it, there really was no plan B. There was just that plan A. And in order to find that plan A, number one, I needed to teach myself how to make music. And right. I had a, an incredible standard that was set right. for the music product. And then B, I needed to also have a place where I could perform. So literally every single college campus in Boston, BU, BC, MIT, Northeastern, Tufts, Wellesley, Simmons, Wheelock, Harvard, MIT, wherever had an actual talent show every weekend, I would make it a, I would make it a, a priority to write a new song so I could actually perform it every weekend at whatever open mic or talent show existed. And so that's really how I cut my teeth, if you will, as a musician. And, and, my college and to draw a parallel with that then, so then when you get this spark and say, okay, now I want to be Stevie Wonder, while you're making these mixtapes for the ladies at, at Harvard, where were you in school at that time? Like, w what point were you at when you decided that music was your path? Like, how freshman far year. were you? Freshman, freshman year. Second semester freshman year. <laughs> I already swapped. And I changed my major because I understood that in the absence of money, the only resource that I could actually truly invest in what I loved was time. Right. And so I changed my major so that all the chemistry problem sets and physics and biology and all of the different classes that were cr creating such a, 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 a real, how should I say, like an anchor on my time, right. I let all those go and I decided to study po political science so I could go take classes at the Kennedy School at Harvard, which only required me to show up for class once a month. And, 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 and the final paper was 70% of the grade, so if I got an A on the final paper, I get a C in the class. And, <laughs> and it worked out, because right. I actually still graduated on time. Right, yeah. definitely. So then you're there, and were you making all your music too at this time? So you're writing new songs, but you were also constructing all the music yourself yes. at that same time too. Yes. So then what was the trajectory, trajectory from there? So you do graduate on time, and I know we've talked about too, when you, when you went full in on the music, you said, yo, now that I've been trying to perfect this craft and I'm really pouring everything into this and I'm going everywhere, that became your dream for real. I want to go to New York, I want to give people my beat tape. Like, because back at that time, that's what you did. You went outside the buildings and you tried to catch somebody. Mm -hmm. That period of transition, when you first said, okay, my dream right now is to go be a producer, you know, go really be in the music business. Mm -hmm. Well, I had to get a job right now, for sure. And so a lot of folks, you know, which I'm imagining too, having a Harvard degree, you saying I want to go hand my B tape out in New York to people is not necessarily what people would expect you or your colleagues would be expecting you to do. While I was in school, I was cleaning toilets. And the reason I was cleaning toilets because I wanted to find the most efficient way to make the most amount of money, and that was a job that nobody wanted to do, so it paid the most. So that's what I did while I was in school. It was called dorm crew. At the time, it was 12 or $16 an hour, and that's what I did to just get my little money to run around. Right. When I came out of school, I got a job at the Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts, and there was a program that was teaching young women who were on welfare to learn technology skills so that they could transition from being grocery baggers to actually being administrative assistants and make more money to take care of their kids. 
and I was one in that program. And we would get magazines in for free. And one of those magazines was a Teen People magazine, and there was a contest where you could submit a song and people could call in, and if you won, you got to play at the Apollo. And now you're, you're teaching these women technology skills, and what year is this? You're talking about technology, what time period? This is 99, 2000. Yeah. And I, I, didn't, I didn't meet the age requirement to submit for this contest. And my dream was always to actually get a record deal, but I didn't meet the age requirement for this contest. And I found a young singer at Berkeley College of Music, and we wrote a song together. We submitted it. Long story short, he won the competition, got the record deal. <laughs> and, and it was my first taste of the bittersweet taste of success. And the reason I say that is I had to take a lot of money because I, I, I didn't want to, I, I had too much pride to ask my parents to help me and support me in a career that they didn't necessarily agree with the trajectory. Right. So I had too much pride to ask them for money. So in addition to getting my little checks at the Urban League, I was also taking street money. Because guys from the streets, they had stories to tell, and they would buy beats from me, and sometimes they'd say, well, you know what, do this whole album, and I'll cover your rent for the month. And then I realized that it takes a lot longer than a month to do a whole album, and we got a backlog, because I had a lot of albums to do to cover, you know, two or three months worth of rent. So by the time I actually got the production deal, because me and my homie, we said, look, if you got signed, I was going to be the producer. By the time I got the production deal, when the money came in from that, I had to pay back other people. And these right. were not the type of people that you could just not pay back. Right. <laughs> you had to come with the bag and you had to take care of it. So then what led you to the point where, because you ended up cutting a deal with your dad, right? Like yeah. to, to actually invest. You had this pride and then you go through these, these periods and then you build up the audacity to, to cut a deal with him. How did, talk about how you got to that point and what that, that deal Well, was. I mean, it, it wasn't building up audacity, it was hitting rock bottom. Right. So right. I eventually got to a point where the only place where I could afford was a garage hmm. that belonged to the brother of one of the rappers I was working with. And he had a barbershop and he had a garage in the back and he said, yo, Ryan, look, you know, if, you, if you're up on hard times, you can stay in this garage and there's no bathroom or anything back there, but you can use the bathroom that all the guys from the barbershop use. And, and so once I reached that point, I'm saying, look, man, I'm a Harvard grad, and I'm basically homeless behind a barbershop. So I, I got to go home, man. It's like the prodigal son. You know, you went out, you thought right. you could make it happen. You thought you had the trajectory. You thought you had all the answers. Right. And when I got home, what was so ironic is that my parents kind of sat me down at the table, and they said, look, Ryan, we knew this day was coming. I said, well, how'd you guys know? Well, they said, well, all your bills are still coming to the house. And when we started noticing 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, we said, oh, it's only a matter of time before you get yourself right here. We have to have this conversation. And so he didn't have any money, but he never took out any credit. So he was always getting these offers of credit cards. And he asked me, he said, Ryan, if you could do everything again, what would you do? And I said, well, I wouldn't take any money from the streets. I would just have my own equipment so I could make whatever music I want to make. And he right. said, well, how much does it cost? I said, well, what's the limit on one of the credit cards? <laughs> and he wouldn't max it out, but we had to make a deal. And the deal that he made is, look, I'll max out this credit card, and you have to make me a promise that in the next five years, you pay me back double what I max out. And I'll figure out a way to make the payments, and you would... And I said, well, why the five years? Well, he said, well, that gives you three years to get to law school. 
And two years you get out of law school, and by then you should be having a nice enough salary to pay me back double. And at the time it was about fifteen thousand. So he actually put fifteen thousand dollars credit up, and it was. I remember it was the, the winter of 2002 and Fifth had just got signed to Dr. Drake. And there was, uh, there was a, a protocol online called The Real Player. Yeah. And I remember watching the 50 Cent in the club video on The Real Player yeah. and saying, man, that this beat is so ill.
with people who actually can change your life. And so I believe that for me, hitting rock bottom, you're never really rock bottom if somebody can give you a couch to sleep on. You're never really rock bottom if somebody will cover your meal. They never really rock bottom if somebody will still take your phone call. You never really rock bottom if you can actually give some value. And like I said, the value that we all have that's equal, that equalizes all of us is time. So you right. can exchange your time for money, you can exchange your time right. uh, for some value that you can actually give to someone and you don't have to be right by them. That's right. what I believe. And one of the things too, when I talk to people coming off of that is saying, you know, you are only an email away, a call away, a sure. text message away. For sure. Which is also why you say create more opportunities than you ask for, right? Because if you're just waiting and looking and feeling like people would just need to find you or it's just going to happen, if you're proactive then you run into those people and people see what you're doing and they give you that kind of push that you need. So now you have that. You have this investment. You're out here. You get seen. Your first record goes. So now you're in the music business. You're where you see yourself at. Then after that, you get to, if we fast forward to those YouTube videos and doing it, like, being one of the first examples that I really saw too on the internet of do it yourself. Literally go carry the camera, build your music, put it out, and then those same records would be the records that you would have yeah. on an album or you'd see them on somebody's album. That was way ahead of its time too. That's something people do now, but what was the thing behind doing that? You know, you talk a little bit about that, but you putting yourself out there and showing people how you were making the records and like creating that whole do it yourself kind of spirit and movement that you create? Well, I always look at any platform that creates an equalizer. Mm -hmm. So if you if you want to be on MTV or BET, your chances of getting there are a lot different than if you want to upload a video to YouTube. And so YouTube, therefore, became the equalizer for me. And whenever there's an equal playing field, the person that works the hardest or the person that's most consistent on that equal playing field will eventually rise and differentiate themselves from everyone else that's only just kind of doing it. And so for me, it was important to just really be, once again, intentional and conscious about what I was doing and noticing that at the time, the content that I was creating was missing and I felt it was a way to differentiate myself and to showcase what I was doing in a format that may have fallen outside of the purview of what MTV or BET would put on television because at the time, frankly, I just didn't have money to make the music videos that I wanted to make. But the ability to just have someone film me while I was working in the studio and seeing that response led me to a schedule and a schedule of consistency that differentiated me from somebody who was just a one-off right. doing it. So that you, you've had this drive, this ambition that you've seen if we were to track this story from the beginning to this place, and then you making these videos was also a segue to something that you're just very passionate about now, and that's just empowering the creator, like empowering the person to do it themselves, to create it themselves, to own their artistry, their influence, all of those things. So talk a little bit about the process from then going there, you're in the business, to then taking your music off of iTunes, like being, being the one to do that. What was that like process and inspiration to then do that? When this is still iTunes, like nobody would even think to remove their music off the service then, let alone what they would do now. 
Yeah, I think I think now the great equalizer is just data. And I know everyone talks about data, etc. But right. what I mean is, if you if you have Instagram followers, Instagram actually has all the data. Right? They know when your followers log in. They know what pictures your followers are liking. They know what people those followers are following. Right. And and I didn't. So on iTunes, iTunes knew everyone that bought my record. iTunes knew what other records they bought. And then iTunes would take that information and go sell those people iPhones and laptops and other devices that they really cared about. And I didn't know any of those people. So the only reason I just took that information off is because I believe if I actually just knew 10,000, or I mean, if they had millions of people, if I just knew 10,000 people at $100, that's a million dollars, right? Right. And if they could sell an iPhone, or they could sell an iPod, or they could sell a MacBook, or they could sell uh, you know whatever else they were selling based off of that data, I wanted to be in that game too, because I knew if I could be in that game, even at a small scale, it would literally invert my actual business personally. Right. So just to give you a case in point, when I was signed, my first record sold 180,000 copies. The amount of money that they spent in order to promote a record to sell 180,000 copies meant that I never recouped. Right. I was able to make money on publishing, but on the actual record royalties, I didn't make any money. My second album, Grammy nominated, sold a third of the copies. And I was wondering, well, if we know everybody, or iTunes knows everybody that bought, how come we didn't just email everybody and tell them I had a second album? We should have been selling more albums than less. They had the data, we didn't. The finances on that, to me, were disappointing. So Harvard kid were disappointed. They didn't make sense. And I wanted to understand why they didn't make sense. And I understood very simply that the people that have the data, the people that know about their users, the people that know about their fans, the people that know about their customers, those are the ones that have sustainable business. And then the people that don't know anything about their customers, those are the ones that have unsustainable business. Right, right, right. And I wanted to make sure that I had gotten to a certain lifestyle, travel, uh, you know, certain elements of life that I enjoyed that I wanted to consistently maintain and actually increase so I could actually provide opportunity for other people. And in order to do that, I knew that I needed data to yeah. do so. And that just brings up the, the piece of the person with the information has the power. It's as simple as that. Like the person who has access to that has the power. So you mentioned a lot of that. And, and how many people are creators in here in some form? Content creator, artists, musicians. You talk about a lot about that today, the dependency on third-party platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the same things. You have a video that goes viral. You don't know who's sharing it, who's using it. You have stuff that goes up. Talk a little bit about that for this era now. You thought that back then, but for an era that's dominated by third-party apps and places where these free platforms where people are putting their work out there, the dependency on that and how people should be thinking about owning what they create and put out. I mean, listen, it's, it's, uh, it's challenging to actually stand up here and talk about what someone should or shouldn't do right. with viral success 
which literally no one can anticipate. What is not challenging to talk about is the concept that you discussed, which is you're one phone call away. Right. I know a lot of people who basically, uh, they might cold call someone or they cold email someone and they say, well, you know, I'm going to make you a lot of money. I've actually gotten a lot of those emails. <laughs> the first question I ask is, how much money have you made yourself? Right. And if they make themselves a significant amount of money, then I can see that, okay, with an investment from me, maybe I can 10x that or 20x that or 100x that and we can be in business together. Right. When you have a viral hit, I believe that the value of that viral hit isn't necessarily just all of the eyeballs and numbers and distribution that you got. It's the actual phone calls that you get inbound from that viral hit. Right. And the reason I can talk about that is that when we were able to create this with Cassie, and we had our song on MySpace, mm -hmm. and the song went from 200 plays to 2,000 plays to 20,000 plays a day, it wasn't necessarily about all the fans, because she got the 650,000 fans and friends on MySpace. It was about the inbound phone calls and paying attention to people that saw something that could then be exponentially increased with their participation. Right. And even devoid of a viral hit, anybody that actually takes your phone call at this level Anybody that wants to hustle with you at this level, anybody that wants to invest their time with you at this level is a valuable relationship to cultivate because anyone that's sitting in this room today, if you plan in one year to be at the same level of success that you sit in this room today, raise your hand. Everyone who's sitting in this room today that plans to be at an exponential an exponentially higher level of success than where you're sitting in this room today, raise your hand, right? So that means if I invest time, energy, in the people that will actually return my phone calls now, all of those people, it's like investing in stock, all of those people, none of those people are gonna be sitting at the same place next year. Some will have more exponential success than others. Right. The ones that you overlook that have the exponential success that you didn't return their phone calls because they were at this level this year, right. they're probably not going to return your phone call next year because they already leveled up, right? But if you actually make it your passion, if you make it purposeful that you would like to connect with people, and, and mind you, everybody has limited time. Me and Jay-Z, no matter the difference in our incomes last year, today, we both got 24 hours to work with. That's it. So that means that you guys, in that regard, are all equal to Jay-Z, because you got the same 24 hours to work with. Right. How you spend those hours, it's not about managing time, it's about managing priorities. Right. And you prioritize the relationships of people that actually want to prioritize with you. Now, this is funny though, because a lot of times these are the kinds of advice that we get from like the OG 
that tells you about like how you should be managing your relationship with your girl. Oh, don't make somebody a priority who only makes you an option. I'm seeing, I'm seeing, this, I'm seeing the memes everywhere on Instagram and all. Yeah, you know. And it actually applies on a general relationship level because I'll tell you this. How many guys or girls have invested time in a love or romantic relationship beyond beyond the time that you invest in a professional relationship and you don't even talk to that person anymore. Every hand should be up. Because I know if you don't raise your hand, you're lying. Straight under. And I want, I want you guys to really think about the value that you got out of that relationship. Maybe the sex was good, right? Right. Maybe, maybe the support was good, but then at some point, it broke down, you don't even talk to that person anymore, right? If you would have invested a fraction of that time, a fraction, in relationships with people that did want to take your phone call, that did want to do work with you, that did have a shared vision with you about how they wanted to give value to the world, and you were still friends with those people, you probably are with some of those folks, yeah. then you can see the exponential return that you get from investing your time in relationships that are actually going to matter in the future. And one piece of advice or one phrase that people always say to us too is your net worth, your network equals your net worth, right? That's something people say all the time. You need the right relationships. You need, and a lot of times they say it in the context of the opposite of what you're saying. You need to know the people who are already rich. You need to know the people who are already powerful, and that's how big you are. Describe your idea, because you talk a lot about relationship equity, contacts as currency. When somebody says your network is your net worth, what does that mean by your definition? Man. So, if, if you could, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually kind of obvious. I like, I like, I like discoveries that are obvious. Right. So, let's just imagine right now, if I could just throw up on this, I could throw up on this screen the cell phone numbers of Warren Buffett, Jay-Z, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Puck Daddy. My number, you already have it. <laughs> I could throw up all those numbers. And you, everyone, copy them down and put them in your phone book. Right? It's very much less about how many numbers you have in your phone book and it's very much more about how many people have your number in their phone book, right? So if all those people had your number in their phone book, and you were top of mind for any opportunities that they were working on, right. then that's really where the relationship becomes valuable. And so for me, the reason why I give my phone number to literally every person that I meet is because I want to be the person whose name and number is in everyone's phone so that when I actually reach out to them, I don't get the new phone who this. <laughs> I get the, yo Ryan, what's up man, yo, I was just thinking maybe we can right. do such a gift. And what I realized man, is like, up to this point, I've had my number just out for the last, you know, three, four years. Right. Six, you number on MySpace back in the day. Yeah. It's been there for a minute. Straight up. Yeah. 67,000 people have texted me over that time. And the crazy discovery is that most people just give up. 
Maybe they really they just give up, right? Because I guess we're taught like, hey, if somebody doesn't respond, then you know we're being rude or we're being pushy or we're being right. intrusive. Especially yeah. now in an era where people are so used to you, you being getting a tweet right now, a DM, a text, a phone call. So if you're not catching their attention, you just feel like automatically it's somebody who doesn't care, kind of ready yeah. to go off. Yeah. So what I, would, I would, what I would respond to that is the people that don't give up, they end up working on my team. The people that don't give up, they end up being friends. The people that don't give up, they end up getting an investment check from me. The people right. that don't give up, it doesn't always happen immediately. It may be just something that I track over time, but people that have the persistence, Sean Green sitting here, Kent, Miles, Lee, people that just didn't give up, they actually right. figured out a way to say, look, Ryan, I want to be part of the movement, I want to be part of the team, I, I have something that's valuable, I want to learn, I'm going to invest my time in return for opportunities, in return for introductions. And I've watched folks who didn't give up right. actually then reap the value of relationships that I had. So when I, you know, the guy that was shooting all of the, the Ryan Leslie YouTube videos, I got a call from Sierra Pardo, who's the creative director for Rihanna. She said, you know what? Ree's been watching your videos, and we're looking for somebody who can kind of do that for her. Next thing I know, Evan was on a DJ with Rihanna never came back home. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to think, right. you have to think though, Evan Rogers was a kid who got a scholarship to Monroe College right. as a football player, got injured, was trying to figure out how he was going to pay for college, was sitting in his basement watching one of those YouTube videos and saying, Ryan, you know what? I just want to be on the team. I, I don't know necessarily how to hold a camera, but I'll invest my time. Now he's literally Rihanna's personal archivist. Every single behind the scenes video that you see, you'll see his name. Video directed and, and by you've done that. And, and to this day now, that being one example, you've had people in your phone book produce your albums, yeah. direct your videos. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Your renegades, the people yeah. who are in your phone, yeah. have literally been involved now in every step of your career to this point. Yeah. So now you have this whole community of collaboration through your super phone, right? So which is a great thing too. So now you're in the music business. You have the success with Cassie. So you're this producer that people like, but in in the background you're building this layer of technology, this thing which will become the super phone that's all built around scalable communication, this relationship equity idea. Mm -hmm. So describe what was the idea behind super phone and the evolution of it from that point to now. Because now how many people do you manage on your phone now? 67,000 people. Directly on phone, yeah. And you communicate with them directly, sell to them directly. When somebody has a birthday, you know, and you can call them or whatever. So when you build this technology to now, the idea behind Superphone, that void you saw, and then the evolution of where it's gotten to to this point. Yeah, so really, the beauty of technology is that you can take an idea that you have, make sure that it works for you, and then scale it to other people. So if you think about Dropbox, the kid that actually was like, man, how come I have to carry a hard drive around? How come I can't just upload my mail? Let me make sure it works for me, and now he has 900 million people that use Dropbox because that's the beauty of technology. So for me to understand everything that I know about networking, everything that I know about relationship management, relationship equity, I 
it would be very, very challenging for me to actually do this every night for the rest of my life. Right. And even if I did it every night for the rest of my life, it would take me years and years and years and years and years to reach hundreds of thousands of people. And not everyone will actually be able to hear this conversation. You know, we, you know, we'll put this film on YouTube and people can see it. The beauty of technology is that I can literally just say, look, everything that I know about what's important that I never learned in Harvard about having great relationships, I can build into a technology platform so I can just download and it will literally take you step by step and walk you through and say, hey, it's been two weeks since you talked to Julian, why don't you shoot him a text? Yo, it's been two weeks since you talked to this professor that's your mentor. What do you want me to text him, right? And the beauty of that is, over time, I can touch way more people than I could even touch by doing music. Right, so then there to where it is now, right? So now you're in a position where this is technology that big enterprises, big corporations, they've been trying to get in front of this for a long time, this idea of how do you get this personal and know who your number one fan is, who your number one customer is, who all these people are on a personal level. Something that you would develop with this layer of technology. So where is it now? And how do you see this kind of transforming the way that Listen. people communicate? If you're a creator managing your relationships in your, in your audience. Listen, the fact that earlier this morning I was in Cincinnati giving this talk to Procter Gamble, right? And the fact that every single person that's in this room has the ability to be ahead of a Fortune 50 company in terms of actually owning your relationships means that the people in this room, you gotta think, 80 years from now, the people that's running the world, they'll be dead, all right? So that means that every one of you that's in this room that actually has the ability now, because you're not a huge Fortune 50 company, that you're actually only managing maybe 50 or 100 or 250 contacts, means that you can actually be ahead of the curve of a Fortune 50 company so that if you employ the strategies and you leverage the technology and you leverage the innovation that we're discussing here, you'll be ahead of the curve. That's the beauty right. of, I think, this discussion that we're having. Right. And that's what I really am interested in empowering everyone with. Now, I have investors mm -hmm. and I need, and I have an obligation to my investors to make right. $60,000, $200,000, $250,000 a month. But that's not the reason why I started Superphone, and that's not what propels me ahead with the idea of Superphone. The idea of Superphone for me is propelled by the fact that if we really want to change the systemic disparity between the haves and the have-nots, then we need to employ innovation, and we need to employ the tools to which we have access ahead of other people so that we can have a competitive advantage in the future. And so, if I knew then, when I was at Harvard, and actually, you know, this is funny. I went to Facebook, sat down with the Facebook team, and one of the guys who actually went to Harvard said, yo, Ron, you know what? If I actually did actually keep track of everybody I met from the time I came out of school to the point where I am at Facebook now, I would be in a different position. Because right. I would just know more people. I would have I would have taken more interest in cultivating relationships with people that could have right. definitely made a change. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you now, there's nobody in this room who's actually 100% efficient 
including myself, 100% efficient with follow-up, 100% efficient with relationship building, 100% efficient with communicating, right. even at a small scale. That's why we write on people's Facebook walls when Facebook reminds us that it's their birthday. And that's why it cheapens that interaction, right? Because people say, oh yeah, well you just said that because Facebook reminds you, right? Well, we talked about that, the, the cheapening or the lessening of the quality of relationships in this era. Because everything's so touch and go and yeah. you have to be reminded of those different things. Listen, I, I just, I, I would say this again, if you guys have taken anything away from, from our talk today, and once again, if you want to continue to talk, my number is on my socials. When I ask you to put your info in my phone, it's because I want to know who you are. It's not because I don't have time for you. I want to, I want to know who you actually are. So actually, the words my guy was a cameraman was like, yo, I texted you today. And I was like, well, I, I asked you for your info. He was like, oh, I thought you were just, I thought you were swerving me. I was like, no, I don't want to know your info. So if, I, if you send me a text and, I, and my phone says, hey, I need your info, put your info in my phone because I do believe that you have to prioritize the time that's not scalable, right? So I'll leave you with, with a, uh, I'll leave you with kind of a pyramid, right? Now, we talked a little bit about how we invest in our romantic relationships a lot, right? Because we want intimacy, right? So the highest level of the pyramid, and we call this, for me, I call it the pyramid of intimacy. The highest level is when you make love, right? You can't get any closer to that person. You're connected, right? right. The highest level. One level down, right, is a one-on-one -on -one conversation, which is why that one-on-one -on -one conversation leads up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> one level down is an actual small group discussion. Once again, in person, small group discussion, right? One level down from that is a phone call. One level down from that is a conference call. And I would say actually above the call is maybe a a video or a FaceTime or a, a group video, right? And then from there it kind of moves down to like texting and then from there it moves down to like email and then from there at the very bottom of the pyramid of intimacy is social media, right? And what I would say is that we have very unscalable limited time at the top of that pyramid. So that means your phone calls that means your in-person meetings. That means the people you even have dinner with. I think there's a book that's called Never Eat Alone. Never Eat Alone. Yeah. The people you have dinner with, you actually, even if you had a different person at dinner every day for a year, that's still only 365 people. So it's important to actually make sure that you prioritize the limited time that you do have and prioritize the people with whom you want to interact. And in order to do that, you need as much context about those people as possible so that you can actually connect with people with whom there can be an equal value exchange and you guys can level up together. That's what I really believe. And that's really the thesis behind Superphone. And that's the thesis behind all the work that I'm doing. And I got to get on a flight to London to go yes. do this talk tomorrow. <laughs> but I appreciate y'all. And we're going to take a couple of questions. We yeah, take a couple of questions. questions. First of all, give it up for Ryan real quick. Thank you.
Alright, what's going on? My name is E.T. Um, feel me yourself. Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah. I've been a big fan, man. I've watched a lot of your videos and it's crazy because I sent a lot of your talks to my friend. We um we started creating custom Snapchat filters because of um, a lot of the things you said as far as leveraging relationships and stuff like that. Sure. So we would go everywhere and hand out our card and and um it, and we actually built like a small business off that. I just want to know like for you, what was the turning point in your career that you was like, oh, I can really make money off of this, and I, this is actually fun for me. I, I, like, I want to do this forever. All right, everybody in the, in the house that, that doesn't have fun making money, raise their hand. Okay, go ahead. So once you start making money, it's definitely fun. And that is a turning point, right? So when you're actually doing something that you love, and it's, it's valuable to more than just you. And that's what I find with a lot of like creators, they love making music, right? But that's already an incredible value to themselves. They should be paying for that euphoria that they're getting from making music all day long, right? When the value becomes bigger than the value that you get from doing it for yourself, that's really when the universe rearranges itself and people will pay you to get that value. And when people start paying you to get that value, starts being a lot of fun. You're getting paid to do what you love. That's what I would say. Other questions? Questions? You got that? Oh. Ryan, big fan. A lot of respect for you, brother. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Super phone idea is amazing. Yeah. Um, did you have to go through a series A, B rounds yeah. uh, in order to to you know, raise funding for yeah. the concept. Yes, I did. And as far as the process, did the investors have to scrutinize over either a business plan, where they're expecting three to five years uh, operating in a red while uh, generating income? Sure. And basically, yeah. do you see yourself having to do another round to raise uh, to help build your pocket? Yeah. So getting investment for your we talked a little bit about my dad making an investment. Uh, just to be fully clear, we raised just under $4 million for Superphone uh, from like 70 different investors that include, you know, athletes to visionaries and luminaries in Silicon Valley and management companies and all these other people. And really, it was different for me because I already had a proof of concept. And the proof of concept is that leveraging this messaging technology I generated $2 million with no label, no manager, no PR, no music videos, just off of text in one album cycle, right? And that's more than I'd ever generated being signed. And that kind of validation, once again, once someone who's actually made money in the past, they can look at that validation and say, can you replicate this scalably? then they want to make an investment. And so that's, that's, that's really what my process was in terms of actually raising money. And yes, we have raised money, we've raised a seed, and now we're raising our, we're closing our seed prime of 2.5 million. And people in your network helped you build the technology. Yes, and people in my network helped me build it. So they would text me and say, hey, Ryan, I love what you're doing. I'm a developer. Yo, Ryan, I love what you're doing. I'm a designer. Yo, Ryan, I love what you're doing. You know, I can do front end and UI and UX design. So that's really the beauty of, like I said, being in as many phone books as possible. Because when someone's sitting in their crib at night and they just finish their freelance project and they're thinking, like, who else can I reach out to that maybe could use my services? They're going to text me. And so that's what I would say. 
the beauty and the reason why we, we definitely don't give our cell phone numbers out to everybody is because up to this point, there's simply not been any inbox management or CRM tools for messaging. When you look in your iMessage thread right now, or if you got a Samsung, you look in your message thread right now, there's no organization. You can't say like, yo, just show me my unread messages. You gotta scroll through and see which ones you didn't read. Just show me messages from my family. Clear out all the other ones. I know a lot of guys on a Friday night would be like, yo, just show me messages from the bad ones, right? <laughs> trust, trust me, we've done, the, we've done the field research. We know what people want, right? And, guy, and girls too, we're like, yo, show me the messages from the guys that got it popping, right? So the bottom line is that the, the absence of this kind of intelligence on messaging is what really drove me to say, look, you want to actually, in order to give people the opportunity, I can't just stand up here and talk to everybody and say like, hey, you should give your cell phone number to everybody. Because if you do that, you're not going to be able to manage it. I have to not only tell you to give your cell phone number to everybody because it's the most powerful social handle that you can give out. You might exchange Instagram handles. You might exchange Twitter handles. You might exchange your YouTube. You might exchange email. The cell phone number is the most powerful. You can't call somebody's Instagram handle. You can call the phone, though, and based on the prioritization and the intelligence that technology can give you to prioritize the people in your network, I can literally set who actually can ring my phone or not, right? And so that's really, um, the people in my network ended up introducing themselves, introducing me to other folks, and now my phone or my super phone actually tracks, hey, Julian introduced me to this investor. This is the first conversation we had. This is how long it takes for this investor to respond. Hey, we're getting closer to actually getting an investment. This is how many phone calls we've had. So I have a full picture of every single relationship that I've ever made from the beginning of that relationship. And then over time, it gives me kind of like a heat map of who actually cares about me because they're actually responding in a, in a timely fashion. Right. Do you guys want to hear one more question? Yeah, we got time. I got, I, I got, uh, I'll tell you right now. Uh, let's get a little time. No, 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 no. I, 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 can, I can stay for another 20. I can stay for another 20. If I miss this flight, it's y'all fault. Thank you so much for your time. Um, amazing talk. Can you speak a little bit to, towards the quality of relationships? So, us in this room, we understand the value of relationship equity. Um, now because uh, we've been here and able to experience this, but because relationships are a two-way street, yeah. how do you, I guess, scale or how do you um, have strong relationships, build strong relationships if you're you know, not at the point where you're necessarily promoting a business, but you're trying to ramp up your connections to people who are in, you know, the average person who does not necessarily understand relationship equity, you know, they have busy schedules, they, they're not necessarily going to have a whole conversation with you. You know, you're ready, you have your, your contacts, but how do you um, pull the quality out of it, you know, with people who may not necessarily understand the value of relationship equity at the point? Sure. So, the question she's asking, I think, is the question that all of us have, and that is, once you have all these people in your phone, how do you actually deepen the relationships with those people? First of all, it's like natural selection. The people that respond first, those are gonna be the people that you can have a deeper relationship with. The ones that are unresponsive, that you really want to forge a relationship with, there needs to be a value proposition that makes them 
want to pay attention to you more than they pay attention to their mom or their significant other or the people that they're already working with on their team because, like I said, you only have, when I say 24 hours in a day, take eight of those hours off if you're sleeping, right? And then take another three off if you're eating. Then take another hour off if you're working out. And then take another eight off if you're actually at a job, right? So how many hours do you actually even have to actually spend and develop friendships or relationships. And so it has to start actually within yourself. And you have to say, like, look, I'm here. This is the job that I'm at. These are the people that I have around me. I have to ask for introductions. How do you ask for introductions? Well, I need to decide, like, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm going to come to this event tonight. I'm going to bring two or three people. And now we have a reason to go somewhere to grab a drink and talk about everything we talked about. And what we found is that relationships really, it's about proximity because proximity gives you the ability to actually have those in-person interactions. And then number two, it's about frequency, right? And so that's why in the technology that we built, it literally has an inactivity tracker that will tell me like, hey, Ryan, it's been a week, reach out. It's been two weeks, reach out. And so anytime my phone detects that the conversation is going dead, it reaches out on my behalf. And then as long as that person responds, the relationship actually gets deeper. So it starts with you. That's what I would say. We got, we got a few more. Okay. I got time for a few more. And, and tell them, too, like the artists and the people you have helped already along the way. Like you've done a lot of work with Nipsey. You've done work with other artists. Yeah, Nipsey Hustle, Wiz Khalifa, Bruno Mars, Mike Posner, uh, Man, Joyner Lucas, the name of this album is his actual super phone number. <laughs> 70,000 people in there. Yeah, so yeah, for sure. What's up, brother? Ryan, what's going on, man? What's up, man? Tempo. Barnes, what's good? Uh, quick question, I kind of, maybe it's two-sided. Um, the first one's like, how do you, what hacks are you doing to actually prioritize 67,000 contacts, Traveling to London, being in Cincinnati, talking to all these people. And so, what what uh, hacks and what are you doing? I know you have a big team, you have interns, maybe have AI people reaching out yeah. and doing these yeah. things. And then on the flip side, how do you help people who have super phones do that for themselves as well? Yeah. So how do I hack prioritization? Well, the first level of prioritization that was originally built into the super phone is, did you buy my album? Because if you bought my album, you got priority. Then, if you straight up, right? Then, the next layers beyond that were people who were giving me, like, incredible levels of support. So some people would buy an album. Then when I did the sneaker collaboration, they bought two pairs of sneakers. Then when I did my New Year's Eve party, the tickets were $1,700, and they came to that. It changes the priority, right? So that's a very transactional way to change the priority. The next level is we have social listening built into Superbowl. So that means that if someone sends me a text, they didn't buy anything from me, but they have two million followers on Instagram, there's a different way that I can leverage value from that because now I can say, hey, you want to talk about my new record, whatever, here, I'm going to send you a preview, I'm going to send you the album cover, I'm going to send you my flyer, etc. So I'm able to prioritize that way. When I started to raise money for Superphone, people are writing me checks, 25, 75, 250,000, 500,000, the priority changed again, right? And then there is a different level of prioritization that just happens to be around family. 
family's always going to be at the pinnacle of the of the pyramid for me. So no matter how important an investor call may be, an investor dinner, etc., my family and those people that I prioritize as crew or family, they will take precedence over even someone that's written me a half a million dollar check. So it's really just about thinking what's important to you and what's important to you in your relationships with the world. And then you create your own prioritization around that. And if you already have Superphone, we run workshops actually every Monday. They're called Superphone Socials, where you can bring your Superphone account in. You can say, look, I got 300 people in here, but I'm not sure how to actually make sense of it. And what we also allow people to do is just take your existing contact list, import it into Superphone. You got to get a new number, because we're almost like a mobile carrier. Import it into Superphone, and then over time, as people reach out to you, you put the tags on them. You say, oh, this is somebody that's in fashion. This is somebody that works for Delta Airlines. I'm going to hit them up when I need some miles. This is somebody that fixes iPhones. When my girl throw my phone out the window, she's mad at me, I get him to fix my screen. These are all real things that have happened based on communication and being able to actually put some tags on the people as you communicate with them. And Ryan, one thing I would say before we take the next question, I think a lot of people, too, we talked about relationships and connections, but the other thing is influence also, right? For sure. And the idea that what you managed to do with just 15,000 sales still making $2 million in an album cycle, or saying if I'm managing 67,000 people, I can still have the influence that's bigger, right? People who may have 200 followers or not be like social media stars with millions of people, that changes the dynamic of what influence is too, right? Like, yeah. if you can control them. So talk to a little bit about how people should think about what influence really means or what that looks like for the new era. Like, people who are creators who own and know the audience that they're connected with. Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, there was a concept of like a thousand true fans. Yeah. A thousand dollars from a thousand people over the course of a year is a million bucks. Two hundred dollars for five thousand people is a million bucks. $100 for 10,000 people. So it's really right. just about scaling that up, and that value doesn't necessarily have to be money. It could be Bitcoin, right? right. Be but you just, you just literally just have to apply whatever's valuable to you, and that's how you assign your prioritization in your phone book. That's, yeah. what, that's what I recommend. We had another question right here. There's some ladies. There's some questions. Hi, Ryan. Hi. <laughs> Such a fan, renegade and all. My name is Georgette. Um, bigger question, or just more simplified question, is marrying the creative with the business. So as creators, we're punch drunk over like, oh my art, my art content, but then you're not making any money from it. What insight would you give for people that that just marrying the business with the creative? You gotta find people that want to support your art. You know. So I mean, listen, there've been a lot of folks that have said like, hey, Brian, you know, you should just start painting because. Painting actually creates scarcity. Music, once it can be copied digitally and actually have an exact copy digitally that sounds exactly the same, it's different because there's no scarcity, right? So which is why you know a a Warhol could go for upwards of twenty million dollars, right? And if I said, hey, you know, I got a copy of my first album on a CD, I'm definitely not going to be selling that for twenty million dollars, right? I think Wu Tang tried to do it for like a million or something like that. And so it's just about finding people that want to actually support what you're doing. And to the extent that you can find the people that want to support beyond just streaming for free, because streaming for free, you're only going to get seven tenths of a penny per stream, right? 
once you find that community, it's almost like a church, right? So, like, when you think about church, you go there every Sunday, they read the same book, they sing the same songs, and they pass the, record, pass the plate around every single Sunday, and people support it because there's some exchange that they feel that is valuable in their spiritual journey, right? And so for you as an artist, you almost become the pastor of the congregation of people that want to support. And in so doing, you really can write the same songs over and over again, right? And I think like consistently, probably, you know, some of the greatest artists musically, the ones that really stick to the skirt and they sound like they're writing the same songs over and over again, have ridiculous consistency. I mean, I work with Mary J. Blige. The songs where she's singing about heartbreak and, you know, those are the records that consistently return the same kind of emotional value and people reach in their pockets and say, I want to go to that experience. It's almost become spiritual. That's what I would say. Hi, Ryan. I actually had the pleasure of watching you this morning at the webcast in Cincinnati. Thank you. you know, you're welcome, despite the technical difficulties on my end. <laughs> um, but the theme of that webcast was innovation for growth. So my question is, as um, Super Bowl evolves, like what do you and your team do in order to stay ahead of the curve? Like your, your company, like yourself, other companies are presented, we're presenting to an agency that's been in business for 100 years. So somebody that's new, or a baby, if you will, like how do you continue to evolve and be innovative in order to stay ahead? Listen, I, I, I think really, when you're doing a platform play, that creators, like everyone that's in this room is creative, they are going to innovate how that platform can be used creatively to solve the myriad challenges that they are facing. And that's really where the value becomes. So for me, I'm mostly interested in not necessarily saying, yo, you should get a super phone number, it's $10 a month, you know, you can employ all the strategies that I've talked about here. I'm eventually interested in walking into Verizon or AT&T or Telia Mobile in Sweden or Etisalat in the Middle East or MTN in Nigeria and saying, look, if we want to change the dynamic of the disparity between the haves and have-nots, this intelligence on top of the dominant form of human communication, messaging is the dominant form of human communication. The fact that there's no intelligence on it, yeah, it's cool if you want to be an artist and you want to leverage it to talk to your fans. This should just be used for all of your communication. And so the idea eventually is that we become a platform of intelligence on top of the most dominant form of human communication. And when you go into Verizon, and this seems crazy because I know for sure we're going to look back at the video of this talk right here at BK Hip Hop Fest, and we're going to go to our Verizon contract or get our new T-Mobile or Sprinter AT&T phone and you'll open it up and it'll say welcome to your new inbox. And that technology, whether it's ours or not, will be informed by all of the concepts that we're talking about here. And they'll be leveraged by creators like yourselves and that creativity is what will fuel the innovation of how a protocol like this, an intelligence platform like this, can be valuable to humankind. Okay, do we have time for any more questions or? One more. One more. Last <laughs> question. Okay. One more. I'm, I'm, I'm following the time. Oh. 8.45, I gotta be out of here. My flight's at 10.30. Flight's at 10.30. It was a party. Yeah. 
So I feel like with Superphone, we're really talking about relationship management. Yes. It breaks it down to a very like technical uh, point of view, which I feel like people don't really think of it that way. And I know I've seen a lot of your interviews, how you've learned how to pick up coding and uh, even cutting people's hair to sort of make your way through uh, your entrepreneurial pursuits. Sure. I'm wondering if there's any other uh, skills besides managing your relationship that I feel like are really important for success and whatever you want to do. I, I would say managing relationships is the ultimate. And here's, here's the reason why. Most successful trajectory, well, let's just think about Google, right? Google is a public repository of information on demand. So there's a, there's a wealth transfer that happens instantaneously. You don't know about something, you go to Google, you type it in, you get a transfer of wealth, hopefully it's from experts, hopefully it's not fake news, etc. The issue that I have with that entire workflow is that the information that's actually most important for you to be successful is private information, it's not publicly available information, it's the private information about who you've been talking to and who actually can get you to that next level of success that you're looking to achieve. And for whatever reason, when I go to Google and I say, yo, I had a great year in 2013, can you tell me the people I spent the most time talking to, I can't get an answer. Even though they have access to all of my emails from Gmail, I can't just go to Gmail and say, who did I talk to the most in June of 2013 that made the deals that were the most pivotal deals in my career happen? This is what I feel is a huge disconnect for what it actually takes to be successful, which is why most people feel like success means like, oh, opportunity plus preparation equals luck, and if you're prepared, you're gonna run into the opportunity, you're gonna meet somebody and give them their CD, and then something's gonna happen, etc. But really, when you actually invest in relationships, the beauty is that the dependency on luck starts to be reduced. The dependency on luck starts to be reduced. So, let's just say, I really, really, really need to be lucky because I, I go over my time and I need to be lucky in order to make my flight. <laughs> follow me here, follow me here, right? A great relationship reduces the dependency on luck because now I can go on my phone, I can hit my guy that actually sent me a text. The last time I was going through security, somebody was like, yo, Ryan, I really messed with you me. I said, yo, shoot me a text, brother, right? I'll, I'll text you anytime I'm playing in New York, and I'll also text you when I'm running for my, running late for my flights, right? So the dependency on luck is now ridiculously diminished in order for me to have what some other people would consider lucky, right? So when I get to, to, to the security and I realize I'm running late, I can actually call someone because everything that we're doing in life, we have a codependency on other people to do it, right? The fact that we're in this room, the people that turn the lights on, the people that do a security set up the seats, etc. And so there's so many, there's so many instances like the number of artists that I know that wish they could be at the BET Awards. And they're like, yo, man, I just can't wait till I'm big enough I can get to the BET Awards. And then the number of kids that are actually sitting at the BET Awards next to DJ Khaled, because they have the number of the production assistant that actually fills the seats. So the chance meeting with DJ Khaled 
is no longer, once again, dependent on the magic pixie dust of love. It's just a phone call that says, like, yo, I know you do you a PA at the BET Awards, man. You put me in the seat next to Cal, right? So that's why I would say, yeah, there are definitely other skill sets, you know, being able to speak well, being able to be good at whatever you say you're doing. But I would say that even people who aren't the best are still getting opportunities because they've invested in the relationships that matter. Because if you're close to someone, even if you're not giving them money, like, what's the value even of trust? Why is it that LeBron would actually hire his crew to actually help manage his career besides hiring the most experienced agents in the world is because there's sort of an invaluable, priceless, um, uh, 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 there's, there's sort of like a priceless element to just having trust. What would you prefer, someone who's very experienced, who would screw you, or somebody who would learn with you that you can trust? What do you prefer, right? And so that's why I would say that I believe that, and the reason why this is something that, as all of you can see, I'm so passionate about it, is because I know for sure that if you spend the time, as much time as you spend trying to get fly, or looking at hype beats, or standing in line at Supreme, or watching YouTube videos, etc., if you spend the time making real connections, investing in real relationships with people who actually will take your phone call, people that will discuss things with you, people that will work on your projects with you at this stage, like we illustrated before, nobody that you're going to talk to in this room today wants to be at the same level in a year that they are today. They want to improve it. So if you can help them to do so, eventually the network, even of just these people in this room, I'm so excited. I'm ecstatic and excited to think that based on this conversation, the potential that can happen, the magic that can happen, the reduced dependency on luck of us working together and collaborating and being smart with our time, the, the, the one resource that we share with literally anyone that's had any level of success. I'm excited about that, and that's why I flew from Cincinnati, and I'm missing, I'm not missing my flight. But I appreciate y'all. My name is Ron Lewis. I love you.